You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Hi everybody, this is Danny Anderson once again welcoming you back to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks for joining us as always. Uh, remember that if you have any feedback about this show or any others, you can either go to our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com, and leave some uh, feedback there on the show notes pages, or go to our Facebook page, uh, which has become pretty active lately, which is a lot of fun to interact with you guys. Uh, today, I think you may have something to feed back on, if, particularly if you're interested in uh, higher education. Uh, I've been very interested in a long time in doing a show about the so-called free college plan. Um, Senator Sanders introduced this idea during the uh, presidential primaries last year, and it seemed to have taken up some steam. Uh, Governor Cuomo in New York has uh, sort of acted on it lately. And I, uh, full disclosure, work at a small private college. And so my own kind of self-interest <laughs> makes me perhaps overly suspicious of this, uh, of this idea of uh, making public college free. Uh, but uh, I do want to have a fair discussion about it. And so I've been looking around for someone to talk to about this. And uh, our very own uh, Kristen Filippic uh, from the Christian Humanist Radio Network, our press liaison, her father happens to be an authority on this. So I want to welcome um, Matt Filippic uh, to the show today. Matt has uh, spent much of his adult life in higher education policy and administration. After finishing his PhD at Ohio State, he went into state government, spending most of his career at the Ohio Board of Regents, which does planning and makes recommendations to the state legislature about state colleges and universities in Ohio. After leaving the Board of Regents, he went to Wright State University as their vice president of business and finance. A high proportion of Wright State students are first-generation college students, which makes the, him, I think, a, a special authority on this topic. After serving in administration for over a decade, he spent a few years as a visiting professor in the political science department at Wright State before retiring to dote on his grandchildren. Uh, Matt, that intro was actually written by your daughter, <laughs> so that's how I have uh, that kind of information. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. 
I'm uh, very, very happy to talk to you. Um, and I'm really, uh, the, our conversations leading up to this have been very kind of exciting and, and educational for me. So I'm really happy to share this with our listeners, uh, many of whom actually work in higher education. So I think that there's a, a, a real uh, interest in what you have to say here today. Um, do you want to begin by maybe talking just a little bit about your interest in this topic and then we'll get into some of the particulars? I was working for the Ohio Board of Regents, which is the planning body or was the planning body for higher education in Ohio. And we became acquainted uh, with a man by the name of Richard Shatton, uh, who was a young Harvard MBA working for uh, an organization called Cleveland Tomorrow, trying to do strategic thinking uh, for uh, business leaders in Northeast Ohio. And he came to Columbus, uh, the state capital, uh, to talk to us about the data analysis he was doing that showed an increasing connection between educational attainment and economic growth. And he was very concerned because Ohio uh, had a, a fairly low level of educational attainment uh, for all measures beyond high school. Ohio had a very high high school graduation rate. Uh, but a low college-going rate. And uh, he, he thought that the state needed to give greater attention to that issue to try to encourage a greater fraction of the population uh, to enjoy the benefits of higher education. So this was uh, about 30 years ago, uh, and I've been interested in the question ever since. Well, that's great. Um, and honestly, I, uh, I'm, I'm from Cleveland myself and so much of that sounds familiar to me. I think uh, as you were talking, I, I, I'm remembering these names even. And so, uh, I'm going to have to find some links to that and I'll put it in the show notes for listeners who are interested in that background. Uh, and with a lot of other things, I found some articles that, uh, relate to this topic today. There'll be sorts of lots of homework for our listeners to do after listening to this one. Um, well, Matt, do you want to begin by just sort of talking about, uh, give us some background? Like the uh, college has had a, a very profound impact in the post-World War II era in creating uh, this knowledge economy. Do you want to sort of talk about why college was and is so important? Well, yes. Uh, it, it was clear, I think, to many people for a long period of time that educational attainment was a form of capital, human capital. Uh, we invested in people, and that investment uh, produced uh, higher incomes for individuals, for communities, for states, for countries. Uh, and this this was something that uh, people were just generally aware of. It was not surprising that people who had gone to college earned more money than people who did not. But for the first 25 years or so after the Second World War, uh, there was a what what President Kennedy called a rising tide of prosperity that lifted all boats. Uh, people with more education tended to earn more than people with less education, but rates of increase in income were very similar. Uh, whether you had simply a high school diploma or perhaps not even that, or a college degree. Uh, during that, that period of time from the late 1940s until the early 1970s, there was very substantial increases in income uh, for people with all levels of educational attainment. 
something happened uh, beginning in the early 1970s uh, and to, to change that pattern. And what has happened since then is that income gains have been much smaller than they were uh, in the prior period. And they've been largely restricted to people with educational attainment uh, of a bachelor's degree or higher. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's uh, there was a report done by the Pew Research Center in 2014 uh, that looked at incomes by level of educational attainment uh, for Americans going back to the mid-1960s. Uh, I'll, I'll focus on the change since 1979. By that time, the change I'm describing uh, had already begun to occur. And from 1979 to 2013, on average, people with uh, a bachelor's degree or more enjoyed an eight, about an eight and a half percent increase in income on top of inflation. Uh, people with uh, a high school diploma, uh, on average, you know, only a high school diploma, no college at all, on average suffered a loss of 13% of income over that same 34-year uh, period. And people with some college but not a bachelor's degree had an even bigger drop in income of almost 18%. So this is a a really major change uh, where uh, higher levels of educational attainment are becoming more and more essential uh, to economic prosperity for individuals, for communities, for states. Uh, ironically, uh, during the same period of time uh, since the mid-70s mid or so, states have been withdrawing support for public higher education. And that is one of the factors that has produced very dramatic increases in public sector tuition. And uh, that, of course, is what has led some states now to begin looking at what appears to be a very radical proposal, and that is free college. Uh, this would not have been a radical proposal 50 years ago. Mm. Uh, California was well known for having uh, free community colleges and perhaps the best public university system in the world that charged only nominal fees. Uh, before that, the City College of New York uh, was open to anyone regardless of levels of income uh, so long as they met academic qualifications. Uh, but over the years, tuition has risen quite dramatically and uh, and so we find ourselves in the situation uh, that we're in now. Uh, there is a recent report by the College Board, which is an organization that, among other things, tracks data on uh, tuition and fees. And it, uh, it, it shows that uh, the average tuition in the public sector nationwide for a four-year college is now uh, just under $10,000. Uh, and uh, for in-state students, and almost $25,000 a year for out-of-state students. That is on top of room and board charges that average a little bit over $10,000 a 
nationwide. Uh, private colleges have also seen big increases in, in, in tuition charges, uh, and their average was $33,000 last year yeah. for tuition and almost $12,000 for room and board. So very high charges now uh, as compared to a situation where um, uh, tuition was much more affordable back, ironically, in the years when it was less essential. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the takeaway that I got from uh, the data that you, you just went through is that at a point when college wasn't as essential to success, um, it was affordable. And then once it becomes essential, there is uh, you have once you have this growing gap between incomes of people with college and incomes with people for people without college. That's at the point at which it becomes unaffordable for the people who need it most. Right. And obviously that is given rise then to this, uh, this movement, this, uh, this call for free college, which as you say, isn't really, it's almost like going back to the future on some level. It's like, uh, we want to go back to what we used to do, um, as, as a, as a, uh, uh, as a nation. Now, is there, there's something about, um, so state governments don't fund, uh, state schools to the degree they used to. There are other pressures. Do you want to talk a little bit about why state funding for colleges has uh, fallen back? Let me, yes, but let me uh, first point to something that is characteristic of all higher education, uh, not just public sectors, uh, an observation that higher education suffers what uh, an economist uh, by the name of William Baumel identified as what people call the Baumel disease. And that is that uh, important service, uh, services in the economy, uh, are not as responsive, uh, to improved efficiencies as, say, for example, manufacturing. Mm. Uh, and this is an insight that came to him, uh, suddenly one night. And it helped him understand why the cost of medical care was uh, going up faster than uh, other costs in the economy and why the cost of education was going up. Um, the uh, famous United States Senator uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, who was something of an intellectual and he was aware of uh, this discussion in the world of economics, uh, uh, illustrated the point by saying that when uh, Mozart wrote his string quartets, it took four people to play them. Uh, today, it takes four people to play them. Uh, that you look at manufacturing over uh, a hundred-year period, and there have been dramatic increases in productivity. Mm. Uh, uh, president James Garfield, who before he became president of the United States, had been the president of Hiram College. Uh, he had gone to, uh, got his education at Williams College at a time when it was led by a very famous, uh, educator by the name of Mark Hopkins. And he was asked once, what is a quality education? And he said, it's a student sitting on a bench, uh, with Mark Hopkins on the other end of the bench. <laughs> uh, and that is, uh, characteristic fire education. Uh, if, if you join uh, a family uh, doing a tour of a campus, trying to decide if this is a campus appropriate 
uh, for their children, and you listen to the questions that parents ask, uh, they're not asking about efficiency. Uh, they're asking how large the classes are, mm-hmm. and the right answer is they're small. Right. Uh, they're asking who's teaching the class, and the right answer is a tenured faculty member. Uh, the uh, They examine the dormitories. They look for a, uh, a health facility. Uh, that They not only tolerate inefficiency, they prize it. <laughs> And, and and so that is that is part of the dilemma that that all of higher education faces. Uh, on top of that, uh, and this is turning uh, to the question you asked, uh, the price that public colleges and universities charge is a subsidized price. Uh, it, it's the price that's left after you subtract the amount of support the government is providing Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, that support has been declining uh, at least as a fraction of the total cost being incurred by the campus uh, for several reasons Uh, but I think there are two that stand out and one is the cost of the Medicaid program Uh, the Medicaid program was established in 19... 65 let's not confuse it with the medicare program established in the same year medicare is a program that provides health care to the elderly regardless of income but the medicaid program provides health care to people uh with lower incomes meeting various uh other requirements uh the medicaid program uh, is a joint federal-state program with the federal government picking up roughly 60% of the cost and the state picking up roughly 40% of the cost, although those percentages vary state by state. And in 1975, just to give you an illustration from Ohio, uh, Ohio spent $163 million on its share of the cost of Medicaid, and that was 6.1% of the total state budget. Uh, 40 years later, in 2015, that $163 million expenditure had grown to $5.4 billion. Wow, wow. Uh, again, that's just the state share of the cost of the program. The total expenditures for Medicaid were well over uh, $10 billion. Uh, and in 19, in 2015, Medicaid as a share of the total state budget had gone from 6% to almost 23%. This is something not unique to Ohio. It has happened in every state in the country. They've had to figure out ways to absorb the cost of this dramatically growing program. And every other part of the budget has been squeezed. Uh, so higher education in Ohio, which had been 15% of the state budget uh, in 1975, uh, was less than 10% of the state budget 40 years later. Um, That's incredible. The, 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 other, the other major factor that I think is common across most states is that the um, uh, I'm sorry, I've lost my th- 
train of thought for a second. Uh, the other major factor is that there is a growing resistance to tax increases on the part of the public. And you can probably trace that back uh, to uh, a referendum in California in 1978, uh, uh, Proposition 13 it was called, and it was an attempt to put a cap on property tax increases in California. Uh You'll note that this is perhaps five years after uh, this change in the economy when incomes stopped growing the way they had been and, and actually began to decline for many people uh, relative to inflation. One of the ways in which people have responded to this is that they're much less comfortable with tax increases to support a growing public sector. Uh, they feel they can't afford it anymore. Uh, and so we've seen now for uh, the better part of 40 years uh, a resistance to taxes, uh, uh, politicians who call for smaller government much more popular than they were 50 years ago. Right. And I think I think it relates to uh, what has happened to personal income since since the early 70s. Mm -hmm. So we've we've. We've seen higher education support from government squeezed by these two factors, uh, increasing demands for funding uh, Medicaid and uh, growing resistance to tax increases to pay for Medicaid and consequently uh, a squeeze on all of the parts of the budget. Yeah, that's um, really good um, background information. I, I wanted that kind of thing. I didn't want this to be just a, an immediate you know, hot take about free college, because to understand the nuance of this debate, there's a lot of backstory and you're doing a really good job, I think, of, uh, of telling that backstory. And you don't have, I, you don't have to sign on to this little claim I'm going to make, but, <laughs> uh, but it seems to me that is since Medicaid's, uh, uh, the obligations for Medicaid have such a, a impact on state budgets, which then trickles down to the withdrawal of support at the state level for higher ed, maybe the solution to free college is actually, um, single payer healthcare. That <laughs> this is could be, this is just my own little, uh, uh, take on the thing. Without that pressure from the state government, uh, perhaps, uh, they would have more money to spend, but you don't have to even comment on that if you don't wish to. Um, that's, uh, but that's great, uh, great, great, uh, background for this, uh, this conversation. Um, the, uh, so the next thing I want to talk about is, uh, these free college proposals, like, uh, Governor Cuomo in, um, in New York, uh, is, uh, kind of famously seems to be stepping onto the national stage, uh, perhaps in anticipation of a presidential run, I'm sure, uh, by taking up, uh, Senator Sanders, uh, free college proposal in the, in the primaries. And, and the, this is the most prominent of several free college proposals that are going on, uh, in the country right now. Uh, so what is it about, uh, do you want to give us some background about the state level, these state level initiatives and talk a little bit about the mechanics of how these proposals work. Sure. Uh, in New York is a good example because it's probably drawn the most national attention. Uh, the, the, the thing to know about the New York proposal, I guess the first thing is to, to just observe that it is a reaction to what we've been talking about. These dramatic increases in prices, uh, in the in the public sector 
there have also been significant increases in the private sector, uh, in, in part because of that Balmol's disease that, that I was talking about. Uh, but, but in the public sector, we've seen this huge increases in, in prices uh, that uh, more and more families find unaffordable, dramatic increases in student debt uh, being incurred to pay for this. And, and so it's not surprising that political leaders are trying to find solutions to this. Uh, the solution adopted uh, in the state of New York has produced uh, uh uh, some very significant relief for a large section of the population, uh, but not for everyone. First, it is uh, uh, available only to people with incomes below a certain level. That level is changing. It, 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 it does, uh, it's changing over time, uh, according to the schedule established in the law. Uh, but it does provide assistance to families with incomes going up to uh, I, I believe $100,000. So it's, it's providing help to a lot of people. Uh, it is only for students enrolled full-time uh, and only if they complete uh, their degree on time. Uh, and, and consequently, it is not available uh, to a very significant population of part-time students who are trying to balance um, work, family responsibilities, and college going. Uh, this is a very large population in the country. It was certainly a very significant population at Wright State uh, when I when I was working there. Uh, and but it's not the population that politicians think of when they think about college going. They tend to think about someone 18 years old, just out of high school, who will be enrolled full time for four years. And at the end of that four years should have a degree. And if they don't, there's something wrong with them. Uh, there isn't something wrong with them. They, they are, in many cases, uh, just simply trying to balance a broader set of responsibilities. Yeah. So New York focuses on the full-time student uh, uh, and uh, provides support for that student uh, until the student reaches uh uh, the four years, and 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 then the and then the age stops. The other thing to note is that New York expects people to stay in New York and work in New York uh, after graduation. And if they don't, the assistance they received uh, becomes not a grant but a loan uh, that they must uh, repay. Right, they have to stay for as many years as they accepted uh, the, the 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 benefit. Right, basically. So right. if they got right. four years, they have to stay four years. Yeah. The, uh, th this kind of proposal is very controversial uh, in, in the private sector. Uh, private colleges are very threatened by it uh, because obviously they're in, in competition in some way with, uh, with public institutions. Uh, New York responded to that by providing increased financial aid uh, to New York students attending private colleges in New York. Uh, to uh, uh, reduce the uh, advantage that public colleges would have over private colleges in New York. Uh, other states have 
uh, approached the problem, oh, uh, before I go to other states, something else to say about New York. Uh, the focus is on tuition. Uh, and this new New York program is what's called a last dollar program. And what that means is that uh, a campus uh, takes a student and looks at all of the financial aid they were otherwise uh, eligible for, uh, Pell Grants, uh, uh, possibly campus grants, uh, and and then it calculates how much state money is needed on top of the grants the student already has to fully cover the cost of tuition, just tuition. Uh, and that's important because uh, for a student uh, in a residential setting, uh, tuition is perhaps less than half of the total cost. Exactly. Uh, and this doesn't do anything to... Uh, provide assistance for room and board, for books, or, or other kinds of incidental expenses. And as a matter of fact, it forces the aid that the student is receiving otherwise to be used to help pay for tuition and can't be used for those other purposes. Uh, so it's not quite as generous a program for residential students as it might first appear. It is the greatest of the greatest benefit uh, to commuter students. Uh, where tuition is the largest fraction uh, of their cost. Yeah. Uh, can we hang on New York for just one second before you move on? Sure. Um, the, a couple of other things. So there's this um, 15, uh, when you said they have to be enrolled full time, it's 15 hours a semester. They have to be enrolled for 15 hours a semester. Um, and that is for working students, particularly uh, a really uh, kind of onerous uh, burden <laughs> in, in some cases for them. And this is one of the criticisms, uh, as you said, about the program is that that is privileging this kind of efficiency. And this is where I'm thinking back to that, uh, was it Brommel model you were talking about before? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, it's thinking of higher education in terms of efficiencies that don't naturally map on to higher education. Uh, and, and what's that, what that's doing is actually putting a burden on some students in order to get this free college, they're going to have to keep up a pace that may not be attainable. Uh, so in the end, you might be undermining student success uh, in, in, I think, more than a few cases. Um, that's sort of one of my critiques of the New York plan uh, in particular. But I also wanted to um, dwell on the the private college thing. And this is where, uh, you know, full disclosure, maybe I'm just being absorbed in my own self-interest here since I work at a small private college. Um, but it seems risky. I, I don't know that this plan takes into account the economic importance that small rural private colleges have to their regions. Uh, and to drive any of these out of business and to any add any more sort of pressure on them is to risk just kind of shoving economic uh hardship into different regions of the state at that point. Uh, and if a college, uh, if a small private college in upstate New York goes out of business, uh, ultimately partially due to this plan, then you're actually creating more problems. Uh, and that, that is one thing, again, on a selfish level, as someone who's associated with private colleges, uh, that I wish this plan took more seriously. Uh, there is an important role for private colleges, I think. Well, I, I certainly agree with that, and there's no no doubt uh, that any program 
to reduce the out-of-pocket cost for attending public colleges or universities is going to create uh, a, a new set of pressures on private colleges, many of which are already under great economic pressure right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but New York is not the only one. That's the one that gets the most attention because it's New York and we all care about what New York does for some reason. Um, but there are other ones in Oregon and Tennessee. Uh, do you want to talk more about this, how these issues get worked out across the country? Uh, a, a few states, uh, Oregon, Tennessee, most recently Rhode Island, uh, have moved towards creating a situation where for at least some of their students' community colleges are free. Uh, and there are several advantages uh, from the perspective of a state policymaker for focusing on community colleges. One advantage is that assuming they have X amount of money available uh, to reduce the burden of public sector tuition, they can produce a greater reduction in price uh, by focusing the money on a subset of institutions. Uh, uh, so community colleges are attractive from that perspective. Uh, in addition, community colleges tend to be uh, uh, where price-sensitive students often attend. Right. Uh, so uh, this is a way of targeting money to a population that is most likely to respond to uh, uh, a, a reduced price. And that needs it. Uh, 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 right. Uh, a third advantage is that it is not as threatening to private colleges because most private colleges don't see themselves in competition with community colleges the way they see themselves in competition with public four-year colleges. And in fact, I know in Ohio, in past years at least, uh, when I was working for the Board of Regents, it was often the case that private colleges worked more closely uh, with public community colleges in the hope that they could attract transfers from those community colleges. Right. Uh, and they could advertise uh, a low tuition program at a community college a as a way of getting uh, a private college degree uh, at a more affordable price. Uh, take advantage of the state support, get your general education out of the way at a community college. We will accept your credits and, and then you'll be paying for two years of a private college rather than four. Uh, ironically, uh, private colleges seem to be uh, more willing to entertain ideas like that than, than many public uh, four-year colleges were. Right. Uh, so this solves a, a number of problems for uh, policymakers and state government. Uh, focusing on community colleges uh, is less expensive. Uh, it arguably targets the money on a population most uh, in need of a lower price and, and doesn't produce the kinds of problems for private colleges uh, that you were just describing a few minutes ago. Right. Um, also, I wonder if um, we could talk a little bit more about how this sort of public support gets targeted in the right direction. There are some criticisms of the New York plan, for example, uh, and I have a link to this uh, on, I'll put a link to this on the show notes. Uh, there's an article on Inside Higher Ed by John M. Burdick. Uh, it was critical of the New York plan. Um, and he has some very excellent uh, 
points. And it's a very well organized little essay with nice, nice bullet points for you to, to take in. Um, but the, um, one of his points is that like city college, for example, is already essentially, uh, open and affordable for working class students. Part of the deal in the New York plan is to allow city college to raise its tuition for people who don't fit into the, uh, the Excelsior plan is what the, is what their name, uh, was the name of their plan is. Uh, and so his argument is that it's actually going to be pushing out more people uh, from city college than it's going to be allowing, um, access to. And that there, uh, these income, um, limitations aren't like low enough, basically. And the argument is that middle class people and upper class people will be able to take advantage of this program that is really meant for uh, working class people. Uh, and that is a, 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 an issue that comes up every now and then. I happen to have spent a few years in Georgia and they have a, what they call a hope scholarship there. Um, and mm-hmm. that program, uh, is funded by the lottery, which is disproportionately funded by poor and working class people. <laughs> That's who puts money into the lottery in disproportionate sure. numbers. And right. much of the benefit of it goes to um, middle and upper class people. And so UGA has been able, the University of Georgia has been able to become much more of an elite college. Uh, and so people who... Uh, so the the effect on UGA is um, people who have been saving money for their colleges to their kids tuition for four years because they've been they're of a class that allows them to do that. They send their kids there for free, as it turns out, because they got the Hope Scholarship and they're then allowed through some loophole to use uh, the money they have saved for college uh, in these sort of college savings pro, uh, uh, save accounts to buy their children really nice cars, for example. <laughs> and so there's this phenomenon of the hope, the hope car, uh, down there at UGA. And so the effect, uh, the tall and long and short of this is the effect of that can be to actually funnel money away from the populations who need it the most. Um, I don't know if you want to like tack on anything about that. Well, uh, let me let me just comment on two aspects of that. Uh, and, and one is uh, that college doesn't have to be free to be affordable, right? Uh, and the the price uh, that is an affordable price very much depends on a family's income. Um, so you're spending an awful lot of money uh, to provide something that is quote free unquote uh where it isn't really necessary for any particular public purpose Uh, and and the second observation i would make is that depending on the restrictions you place on who's eligible for this academically uh, may in fact uh, rule out a lot of the people who are most in need of financial assistance to go to college. Uh, so, for example, if, uh, and I'm not exactly sure what the facts are in the New York case, uh, but if the 15 hours of enrollment that are required have to be credit enrollment and do not include remedial work exactly that, that a student must take, uh, because their educational background in high school wasn't as strong, uh, and 
in, in high schools are very much sorted economically. Uh, that's probably not a problem for a student who went to one of the better suburban high schools, uh, much more likely to be a problem uh, for a student who went to a high school that serves a lot of low-income students. They might find it impossible to... Uh, to successfully enroll in 15 hours of credit work in addition to the non-credit remedial work that they need uh, in, in order to come get up to speed. Um, that, l- let me jump off that to an observation about some national proposals that were uh, talked about last year during the presidential campaign. Good. Uh, Senator Sanders talking about free college, uh, free public college, and uh, and Secretary Clinton talking about uh, a, a program that would allow students to graduate from college debt-free. Uh, the debt-free notion uh, is one that uh, takes into account that different families have different abilities to provide support for their uh, for their children in college. And the focus would be on that portion of the cost that families cannot afford, uh, which is now financed largely by debt. And so Senator Clinton's proposal was less expensive, uh, but uh, arguably provided similar affordability. The, The other observation I would make about any national proposal uh, whether it's Senator Clinton's uh, or, 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 or Senator Sanders or anyone else's, is that the price of public higher education is determined at a state level and is driven by how much state tax money is invested in that state system. And uh, I did not see uh, uh, any, any real discussion last year of whether a proposal at the national level to make college free or public college free wasn't, in fact, giving the most money to states that were least supportive of higher education uh, who have the highest tuition levels now and giving relatively little to states such as California, for example, uh, where tuition has still been kept relatively low. Uh, one of the things we were concerned about at the Board of Regents was uh, to develop funding policies that did not create perverse incentives, did not reward what we saw as bad behavior. Mm. And I think that that that, that is an issue that, that really needs to be studied more carefully if anyone wants to pursue the notion of free college or affordable college at the national level. Absolutely. Um that's a, a really good uh, kind of gap. I think that both of those national plans left, and I feel like in the I don't know the the the, the frenzy to do good in the world, we often don't think deeply enough about the details, right? And, and I think that's where a lot of bad policy comes from. And I feel like the speed with which this free college idea has been uh, taken up is. I, it's not that it's a bad idea in and of itself. It's the the lack of sort of deep thought that I see in the public sphere about it that has been concerning to me. Um, uh, I obviously would love to have more and more people able to come to my classes and 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 take 
take part of what we do in college, right? But there is sort of a, a lot of factors and there's a lot of history to take into account before just jumping onto something just to do something, right? Um, I have one uh, sort of uh, tangential, like, question for you. So one of the, I think for me, the, one of the least compelling arguments against free college is this idea that, well, if something is free, then people won't take it seriously. Uh, and they'll just, they won't uh, appreciate college or something like that. That just from a sort of a lived experience of, of my own, I have lots of students who are paying for college and don't take it seriously. Right. And so I don't know, uh, that doesn't seem like a compelling argument against uh, making college uh, free or affordable. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I do think that there are, there may be some merit in the notion that people ought to have some skin in the game. Sure. Uh, and, and I particularly think that it's doesn't make sense to spend the kinds of public money that would be required to make college free for everyone. Uh, but, but we could have much more affordable higher education, uh, students graduating with much less debt, that is becoming really an enormous burden on the whole economy. Yeah. Uh, without uh, uh, w- without running the risk that people will say, "Oh, it's can't be worth anything. I didn't pay for it." Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, that's you're correct. Uh, <laughs> you're talking me down a little bit, and I <laughs> and I appreciate that. That's one of the reasons I'm glad to have you on the show. Um, well, that's kind of I think a good coverage of the issue and its complexities. Do you have any sort of ideal uh, form of uh, how to resolve these issues in in your mind that you could maybe propose for us? Oh, I wish I did. <laughs> um, I, I think I've uh, I think I've suggested some criteria that might be uh, considered in developing uh, proposals. One, uh, we need to think about all of the costs involved and not just simply tuition. And that particularly for residential students, tuition uh, is uh, a very significant portion of the cost of attending, particularly a public college or university. Uh, second, uh, I, I don't think it's necessary to make something free to make it affordable. Uh, and, and so the notion of minimizing the debt that students uh, incur uh, to finance college uh, the, the whole process, the whole financial aid process of de- determining what sort of loans you need to finance your education uh, tied to the amount that a family is expected to contribute is a way of making sure that uh, we're not giving something free to families that can very easily afford um, a portion of the cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I do think that any national proposal has to uh has to think very clearly about uh, perverse incentives and not rewarding states that invest little in higher education themselves, unless we want to go to a completely national system. And I can't imagine that anyone uh, is ready to do that. Right. So fact, factors like that, uh, some of the things you've mentioned, the, uh, 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 the, the requirement in New York that a student be full-time enrolled in credit coursework enrolled in 15 hours really factors out a lot of the students who are most in need of additional financial support. Uh, so I would, I would hope that 
that other states uh, would 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 consider that problem uh, if if they were trying to address this problem. But but I'm very encouraged actually that states are beginning to talk about this problem and are exploring different alternative solutions because it is an enormous problem. We used to be the country that had a reputation worldwide for being most committed to the education of our people. And it was a secret to our economic success. I remember reading once uh, about a special study that Parliament did in the middle of the 19th century, trying to understand why the American economy was growing so fast and becoming such a threat to them. Uh, And the answer was not simply that we were a big country uh, with no internal trade barriers uh, and with the availability of a lot of natural resources. Uh, The answer that they came to was that the American business had an advantage over British businesses because the American workers could read. Mm. Uh, And and as uh, businesses were developing new technologies, buying new equipment, uh, developing new processes, uh, American businesses could uh, much more easily adopt those changes because their workers were literate. Uh, you look at uh, the commitment in the Northwest Ordinance uh, that a portion of the land in, in, in throughout the Northwest Territory would be sold for the benefit of education. You look at the Morrill Act uh, in the middle of the Civil War, creating agricultural and mechanical colleges. You look at the GI Bill. Uh, there were all kinds of public policy commitments to be sure that as many Americans could be educated at all levels as possible. And as a result, we had uh, the best educated uh, population in the world. Uh, That is no longer true. Uh, Many developing developed countries in Europe and in Asia now educate a much larger fraction of their young adult population than we do. And that has enormous economic consequences. And so it's it's good that states are looking at the problem of financing college, making it easier for people to attend, uh, less of a burden uh, in, in the form of debt. Uh, and I think we ought to be encouraged that that uh, governments across the country are, are looking at this problem and developing different solutions to it. I can't think of a better way to end this conversation, Matt. Uh, that was, that's a beautifully stated, uh, optimistic note that I, I that I really do appreciate. Um, also, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the show uh, and speak with me about these issues. You obviously have thought for many, many years um, and very deeply about all of the complexities and factors that really we need to be considering when we're uh, thinking about any kind of vast proposals like the kind that are thinking about right now. And I feel like I have a better grasp on them right now. Um, I invite the listener to uh, go ahead and respond on uh, in the ways that I've said at the beginning of the show and uh, chime in with your two cents. Uh, there's many more factors. There's many more sort of uh, uh, complexities that we probably didn't get to. Uh, but I do think that uh, this is a great uh, conversation starter for the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you.